0: Well a very good morning all you lovely people and a very warm welcome to this morning's message. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Steph and it's my privilege to share with you today from our series called The Song, which is obviously based on the book in the Old Testament of the Bible called Song of Songs. And so uh, it's coming and it's uh, unpacking the fact that there is the song, the song of all songs, uh, that is depicted within this incredible book as it relates to a husband and a wife, but more than that, on a deeper level, it's also the song of all songs as it relates to God's relationship with us, Christ's relationship with the church. And so I hope as you've been journeying through this series, this book has been transformed for you. For some of you, as you heard that first line in chapter 1, verse 1, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth and You heard that this was something of the church's cry to Christ and you're thinking of Jesus and his scraggly beard coming and giving you a kiss and you're like, I don't know about that. I hope some of that has died away and some of that reservation has dissipated and there's just such a sense of excitement and a deeper profound understanding of the beautiful parabolic language that's used within the song to come and really call us to a deeper relationship with God. And the call within the song, the song of all songs, is that God doesn't want to have a dry, mechanical, formal, organizational relationship with us that's based on what we can do for Him. Really, it's based on this idea, and it's a call to us to come and to to extend ourselves and to lean into a relationship with God, Uh, that is vibrant and alive and organic and living Uh, that's not based on what we might do for him but based on just being with him. And so um, two weeks ago when I preached, I, I, I certainly battled through some of the awkward language there and there were a few blushes and a moment that I had to kind of compose myself and I'm pleased not to have to go through that again. But what we did see uh, from that incredible scripture is that God loves the pleasure of our company, and then last week Aliana came and uh, did an excellent job. You wouldn't say that was her first preach, but she came and uh, spoke about and unpacked this idea of the dark night of the soul and uh, just how this woman and how we go through seasons of uh, a dark night of the soul, where we're saying where where are you, God? Where we feel so isolated, and just as her response in the midst of that challenging season was to come and to praise and worship so too in the inevitable dark nights of the soul that we will face we should come and learn from her and respond in worship and praise to god and so today i'm picking up on chapter six and so it's an eight chapter book we're getting to the end and and as i do you know i was thinking about this uh, song of songs is a book of poetry a couple of poems stitched together and you might think they're like a random grouping of poems or, Uh, And that's all there is to it. But there actually seems to be some kind of uh, linear uh, tracking of the relationship through the song. And I think you would have seen that as we've journeyed through uh, the first five chapters so far. And something that I think we can come to realize, just for anyone that's been in a long-term relationship, if you've been married for 10 or 15 or 20 or 40 or 50 years, you know that your relationship inevitably becomes a little mundane and a little bit repetitive. It becomes a little bit mundane in the sense that it's not as fiery and passionate as it may have been. It's not as spontaneous as it once used to be. And it becomes a little bit repetitive. You know, he keeps telling the same jokes and and she just says the same things again and again. And it's just the same. It's like a dripping tap. and, and, And so there's a degree of the mundane and the repetitive that really is normal and indicative of a growing relationship it's normal (laughs) and so as we come and we look at chapter six in song of songs it's a little bit mundane and it's a little bit repetitive and so it's a little bit mundane because some of that 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 passion and that fire and the zeal and the spontaneity and the desire has kind of leveled out a little bit and Uh, And it becomes a little bit repetitive because we start hearing him say uh, some of the things that we've heard him say before and he's repeating it again. Uh, And so uh, some might think, you know, he's a little, uh, you know, he's a little bit um, slow, lacking a little bit of creativity. And he's just going to his old things again and again and uh, and saying the same things again and again because he can't think of anything new. And really, that's not the case. Uh, And he's not coming and repeating it because she's deaf or deaf and just can't hear it or doesn't know it. No, he's coming and he's repeating it because, you know, in the midst of the mundane, he just can't help himself. He still loves her and he still thinks she's amazing. And more than that, he comes and he repeats it because she's worthy of it. And so, gentlemen, I want to come and I want to um, call us as husbands of our wives not to stop loving our wives and declaring our love and our desire for them, I want to call us to continue to uh, leave them little notes, send them little cheeky uh, text messages, write them poetry, write them songs, uh, do whatever you've got to do, but keep coming and keep doing it. Your, Your wives will never, ever get tired of you coming and declaring your love for them. Even if it's the same thing again and again, if you do it with a, a real sense of earnestness and sincerity, they'll take it, they'll lap it up, they'll love it. And and, and so one of my love languages with Kaz is um, is poetry. I, I'm a bit of a poet, uh, and so every now and then I send Kaz a bit of poetry. And um, and so I thought this might be a great opportunity for me to maybe share a little poem. It's a new one. Uh, Kaz hasn't seen or heard this one before. And so, Kazzy, this is for you. Uh, I'm going to try to remember it um, just written it, with no help from chat, GPT. And so, <clears throat> you ready for this. There once was a girl called Kaz, who was an East London snaz. Every time she smiled, it drove me wild. No wonder I'm such a spaz. Sorry, I couldn't resist it. and It's not one of my best, uh, but um, Kazzy... I love you and um, and with that can i just encourage and motivate all the guys out there to just reach in and dig deep and uh, come and continue to love and affirm your wives just as we see the model within song of songs and so let's jump into chapter six uh, and as we do we're going to read it in a second uh, just a little bit of a breakdown so you track with me as we go It starts off with the others it's a group of people kind of standing on the outside looking in and they ask a question and then she responds Uh, and so they they're asking where is he Um, and uh, here this time again uh, she comes and responds but whereas in the previous chapter she didn't know this time she knows exactly where he is and then we come to the second major poem from him he responds and he comes and uh, there's three major poems. This is the second one with quite a lot of repetition. But the two verses we're going to focus on exclusively today are eight and nine. Uh, and especially the line that says, the only one. The only one. And in fact, that's the title of today's message. And so on that note, let's jump into the scripture. It says, starting with the others, where. Has your beloved gone? O oh, most beautiful among women, where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And then she responds and says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And then he comes in and he says... You are beautiful as Terzo, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come down from the washing. All of them bear twins, not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like the halves of pomegranates behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed, and the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And then she responds, and she says, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. And so, as I said today, as I said to you today, we're going to focus in on uh, verses eight and nine. And so, there's a fair bit of repetition there. There's a linear progression. The relationship is growing and maturing. <clears throat> it's a little bit um, mundane compared to how it was. It's a little bit repetitive. We're seeing the same things come through. But it's, um, it's verses 8 and 9 that I want to come and pick up on. Uh, it says there, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and, women's w- and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. And so when Michael Eaton reads this passage here, he reads it slightly differently. And I'm going to read uh, just the first three lines again. And I'm going to read it as he read it. And he just puts one word in there. And when you put that one word in there, it makes all the difference. Uh, And so it says there in verse 8, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one is the only one. In other words, there may be 60 queens and there may be 80 concubines and there may be virgins without number. There may be a proverbial sea of women out there baying for his attention. There may be Miss South Africa, Miss America, Miss Universe. Every beautiful woman imaginable brought before him, baying and just crying out for his affection, for his attention. And what he's coming and he's saying... In the midst of all of them, there may be all these queens, all these virgins, all these women, but my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. To him, she is the only one. As in, she stands alone. You can come and bring in a million women who are beautiful beyond comprehension. The most beautiful woman in the world. But to him, she stands alone. She cannot be compared to anyone else because no one can be compared. They all fall short. And so she stands alone and cannot be compared to anyone else. And because of this, by virtue of this, she not only stands alone amongst women, but she stands alone in his heart as the one that he sees and has eyes only for her. And so the question we might come and ask at this point of ourselves is, is your husband, is your wife, is your man, is your lady, is your fiancé, is the person that you're pursuing, is your future spouse, is the future spouse that you're not even yet aware of, you don't even know their name, is that person the only one that you have eyes for? In the proverbial sea of all the options out there is she, is he the only one that you have eyes for and so in modern times as we come and we look at what the world has done and secular culture has reduced fidelity to, we come and we see that relational fidelity is actually reduced to that space in many relationships, in many contexts, in many cultures that, that you're only cheating if you're caught And what we've done is we've brought this idea and this concept of you're uh, you're innocent until proven guilty into the bedroom of our lives, into the bedchamber of our marriage. And we're coming in there and we're saying, as long as I'm not caught, I'm fine. As long as I'm not caught, I'm fine. And I'm not saying that that is you and the way you're thinking, but I am saying that that is the prevailing uh, thought pattern and culture In the world that we live in, that it's commonplace to cheat and it's okay so long as you don't get caught. And so in modern times, this thing of being faithful has been reduced to nothing, to naught. And you can go around and sow your wild oats and do what you want. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But relational faithfulness and fidelity is a thing of the past. But the question is, is that's what the world is saying. But what is the Bible saying? What is Jesus saying? And so Matthew five twenty eight comes and says, But I say to you that, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Anyone that looks at a man with lustful intention in their heart has already committed adultery in her heart. And so Jesus comes and He raises the bar, right? He raises the bar. And so it's not just... It's, it's, <laughs> It's not just if I get caught. It's coming and raising the bar to a whole new level. Where when we come and we consider the lust that we might be battling with. The porn that we might be engaging with. The social media that we might be drooling over. The fantasies that we harbor within our minds. In the context of what Jesus said, yeah, this is adultery. And even more so as we come and maybe we, we compare our husbands. And say, I wish my husband was more like so-and-so. It's not a helpful thing to come and say. And it's not a helpful thing to harbor in one's heart. And for us to come and say, I wish my wife was more more like so-and-so. It's not a helpful thing that comparison is not helpful. And it's borderline unfaithful. And so Hebrews 13 verse 4 comes and says, Marriage is to be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept undefiled. Because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. And so this is such a uh, a helpful scripture in the way that it's phrased because when we come and we read adulterers, we're like, well, I haven't slept with anyone, so I'm fine. But God so wisely comes and puts sexually immoral in there because he knows that we'll come and find loopholes every which way. And sexually immoral is vague enough to cover every area that we might come and lend ourselves to and lean into. And And so Song of Songs... This thing, this verse, this line that we've just read reminds us that relationships are exclusive between one man and one woman, together forever, faithfully committed for the long term, even in the mundane, even in the repetitive. This is indicative of a growing relationship that what it needs to be is faithful and exclusive to each other. And so they have eyes only for each other. She is the only one. He is the only one. And so what I want to ask us to do now is to press pause. And by yourself, I want to ask you, not discussing, not going, just by yourself, quietly, to take a moment and to come and audit your life, as well as your thought life, to come and to determine if your spouse And for those of you that are not married, your future spouse, whoever that might be, whether or not they are the only one. And if they are not, I want to ask you to quietly repent, to invite God into that moment and to commit to come and make changes. And even more than that, consider sharing with trusted leaders that can come and help you in this. Why don't you press pause now? great well done and welcome back uh can i just encourage some of you maybe you need to take it a a little further another step and share it with someone that you trust um maybe um maybe your fellowship groups are a great place to do that Um, not with everyone but certainly with your leaders Uh, bring that thing into the light and let them come and partner with you in finding victory in this area of your life and so as we venture forward as we come and we consider this um we are reminded that Song of Songs is multi layered There's that kind of obvious layer of a husband and a wife, but deeper and more profound than that is Christ and the church. And so how does this line of my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, relate to Christ and the church? And so it's quite common to come and ponder that in the context of God, how God uh, is the only one, how he is standalone of all the gods that are out there. In fact, uh, theologians come and speak of this attribute of God that being the solitariness of God. In other words, solitary, alone, that God is alone in the sense that no one can compare to him. He is completely unique. He is other to everything else out there. Uh, and um, and this is the solitariness of God. He, he just cannot be compared and there is no one else out there that comes close to him. And so in the beginning before mankind, before the earth, before angels, before time and and space and matter existed, when there was absolutely nothing, subsisting equally of three divine persons, there was God. God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of absolutely nothing. Nada, zilch, niente, zero. He needed absolutely nothing. Had humans or angels or the universe been necessary to God in any shape or form, then they would have pre-existed existence and pre-existed history with God before time began. Not, no single tiny part of creation in its minutiae, nor the full expanse and scope of creation, universe to universe and everything in between, is necessary to God or can come and add anything to God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, Ah, the Lord, do not change. So therefore, if we come and we understand it, that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we understand then that the glory of God is the superlative standard of divinity that cannot be augmented. In other words, it cannot be increased. And it cannot be diminished. In other words, it cannot be decreased. It's the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And in the context of that, we come and we understand, therefore, that God is the only one. He is the only one. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. You see, He stands alone in comparison to the proverbial sea of God, small g, that are out there. He stands head and shoulders above all of them. None can come and compare to Him. They are nothing compared to Him. And so by virtue of this, not only does he stand alone in the context of any other rivals that might be out there, but because of this, he also should stand alone in our hearts. But as we come and read this in Song of Songs, the context is not actually her saying to him, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. It's actually him coming and saying to her. It's actually God coming and speaking to his church. And he's coming and he's saying to his church, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. But what does it mean? What does it mean for the church to be the only one? And I'm so glad you've asked this, because I'm so excited about this. I, I, I could talk hours and hours and hours about this. I feel like this is my the thing that burns uh, so brightly within me, and I'm so passionate about it, and I feel like when we come and we engage with the church, the, the the levels of understanding and engagement and belief around who and what the church is in the primary priority of place in existence of the church, in, uh, in the heart's of believers out there is so low and so inadequate and we come and we largely reduce the church to programs and methodologies and strategy and events that need to happen and we and events that need to happen and we've lost something of the splendor and the grandeur of the church and who the church is and so as i come and i explain something of what does it mean for the church to be the only one I'm going to do it hopefully with a bit of passion that's not angry or anything like that. It's just something I'm very passionate about. But I'm also going to come and lean very heavily into stuff that Paul Bilheimer wrote in his book, Destined for the Throne. And so, and so, what does it mean that the church is the only one? And I may do quite a bit of reading here uh, as I engage with this. But let me jump in and say that the proverbial pool. Of opinions regarding the purpose of the universe ranges from the ancient Greeks that believed history was cyclical and therefore going nowhere in particular, all the way through to millennials today that believe uh, that uh, they themselves are the center of the universe and that everything uh, orbits and revolves around them. And so, for the average historian, the the, century, the, the center of history for any given period, would gravitate around the greatest civilization of the age, with the leaders of that age being the figureheads, the pharaohs, the Nebuchadnezzars, the Alexander the Greats, the the Caesars, the Napoleons. These empire builders, they considered themselves to be the primary forces shaping history and therefore the central characters of the universe. And their cheerleaders and their fangirls who were cheering them on came and understood them to be, as they understood themselves to be, to be the primary forces shaping history and the central characters of the universe. But a more honest reflection, where we come and maybe look at history a little bit more honestly, might say something differently. And so the French biographer, André Moreau, he comes and he says, the universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we here on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I am convinced no one has. And so the average historian is largely clueless because they use history itself as the source code to come and to decipher the purpose of the universe. They come and they largely ignore the only infallible source to actually do this, namely the Bible. And so to locate the primary force shaping history and the central character of the universe, we need to bypass the vast empires through the ages and find our way to a tiny hill called Calvary, where 2,000 years ago a man named Jesus was lifted up to die. And so I come and I put to you that Calvary and the cross of Christ is the center point of history. Not only the center of history of this world, but also the center of history of all of creation. All of creation, as it spans the universe from one side to the other, and every little galaxy caught in between, the central point of history is crossed and is crossed in that hill of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And so the man hanging upon that bloody cross amid the taunting and the scoffing was, before all things, that's Colossians 1.17. That is, he preexisted history itself. Jesus preexisted history itself. More than that, he was the starting point of history, as we know. For all things were made by him. Without him not, was not anything made. John one verse three. And so not only did he preexist existence, and not only did he come and call existence into being, but we also know that he upholds the universe with the word of his power. Hebrews 1 verse 3. And so with this in mind, Paul Bilhama says, The vast expanse of existence, as we know it, was fashioned and controlled by Christ with a single purpose in view, to provide a suitable habitation for the human race. Do you hear that? That, that, that? that all of creation was made to come and provide a suitable habitation for the human race, for mankind. And so the entire universe, from you know, one universe to the other universe. And everything in between was was put together in its vast expanse to come and create a suitable habitation for mankind, for us. And then he goes on, he says, The human race was created in the image and likeness of God for one purpose alone, to come and provide an eternal companion for the Son. And so, do you see there, he's saying, he's saying creation was made... To come and house mankind. And then he's coming and saying, so he's saying the purpose of creation is to create a suitable habitation for mankind. Then he's coming and he's saying the purpose of mankind in creation and finding its habitation in creation is to come and provide a suitable companion for God, for Christ. So let me read that again. The human race was created in the image and likeness of God for one purpose, to provide an eternal companion for the Son. After the fall and promise of redemption through the promised Messiah, Israel was born and nurtured in order to bring in the Messiah. And the Messiah came for one intent and only one, to give birth to His church, thus to obtain His bride. The church then, the called out body of redeemed humankind, turns out to be the central object, the goal, not only of mundane history, but of all that God has been doing in all realms from all eternity. I hope you got that. I hope you saw how stunning and how beautiful that was. The entire universe in its totality is cooperating with God in his purpose to come and select and train his church As his eternal companion. (laughs) This is beautiful. From this it is implicit. That a godly romance. Is at the heart of the universe. And is key to understanding all of existence. And so the Apostle John further revealed. That this eternal companion. In God's eternal purposes. Is to share the bridegroom's throne. Following the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so the theorem of residual arguments, comes and states that if one wants to know the meaning and the purpose of a thing, one should consider the final outcome and result and work backwards from there. And so since prophecy is, in a sense, history written in advance, we have history's final chapters in the book of Revelation. And so turning to the final pages of the book of Revelation, what emerges as the finished product of the ages is the eternal... Companion of Jesus Christ. The bride. The spotless and unblemished bride. And so the final and the ultimate outcome and the goal of events from eternity to eternity. The finished product of the ages is the spotless bride of Christ. United with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And seated with her heavenly bridegroom upon the throne of the universe. Ruling and reigning with him. Jesus Christ Christ entered into the stream of humanity for this one purpose alone, to come and to claim His Beloved. Thus the church, and only the church, is the key to and the explanation of history. And more than that, the church is the centerpiece of creation. Therefore, therefore history is only the handmaiden of the church, and the nations of the world are mere puppets, manipulated by God for the purpose of the church, I trust and pray that you're zooming out in this moment to the perspective of God looking down on creation and you're beginning to understand and see things as He does. I hope that there are paradigms blown open in your mind as you understand the place and the priority of the church and what Christ has done and so redeemed humanity. The church occupies a totally unique position in the hierarchy of the universe. It really does. And so, not only do we see in the Genesis account that God comes and He creates all these things, but last of all, He comes and creates man and woman. And as He creates all these things preceding them, He says, it is good, it is good, it is good. But the last thing that He creates, and the pinnacle of creation, is the man and the woman. And when He does that, He comes and He doesn't say, it is good. He comes and He says, it is very good. But more than that, more than that, God comes Unlike the rest of creation, He comes and designates to the man and woman that they should be His image bearers, that they should come and reflect His glory. And so we see something of the uniqueness of mankind in that moment. But more than that, as we come and we look at God entering into the flow of creation, into the stream of creation, He doesn't choose to do it as a, as a whale or as a mountain or as a mouse, but He comes and He chooses to do it as man. He enters into, he incarnates, incarnates himself into the into the stream of humanity. Because in all others, he could not come and do that. But with the pinnacle of creation, his image bearers, he could come and do that. And so we come and we see that redeemed humanity, the church, occupies a totally unique position in the hierarchy of, of, of the universe. Not least of all because as image bearers, we have... Uh, being set apart as the pinnacle of creation, but as the church, as redeemed humanity, 2 Corinthians 5.17 teaches that in Christ, the redeemed, the church, are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. More than that, 1 Corinthians 6.17 comes and, and goes further to state that the redeemed are one spirit with Christ. It's incredible. And so through the new birth, we become bona fide members of God's family. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. We become children of God, 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. We become partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1, verse 4. And so thus, through the new birth and our adoption into God's family, we become next of kin to the Trinity. I don't want that to sound blasphemous and as if I'm saying we are God, but we get adopted in and we become next of kin, so to speak, to the Trinity. And so it's on the basis of this adoption resulting in redeemed humanity outranking all other orders of created beings. That the Apostle Paul then comes and can say, do you not know, asking the question, that we Christians, that the church is going to come and is going to judge and govern the world one day. That, that we, Christians, that we, the church, will come and judge and reward the very angels of heaven. It's incredible. It's incredible. And so, redeemed humanity, the church is destined through the new birth to reign with Christ in authority. Destined to be co-ruler, co-sovereign, co-administrator, partner to the throne by virtue of redemption and wedlock to the King of Kings. And so, within the affairs of mankind and the unfolding history of the world, it is not precedence or kings, or billionaires, or United Nations that hold supreme rank and authority in this world. It's not any of them, it is the church, the church alone. And some may wonder as to the outworking of that rank and authority in the world today, here and now. And very simply, we just got to look to prayer to see the extension of that authority. And the extension of that reigning. You see prayer is God's primary way of getting things done. It is God's way of giving the church on the job training. And overcoming the forces that are hostile to God. This world is a laboratory. In which those destined for the throne. Those redeemed. Those that are the bride of Christ. Will come. And are learning through prayer. To overcome Satan. God designed the program of prayer as an apprenticeship for eternity, for an eternity of reigning with Christ. And it is through faith and the weapon of prayer that we're learning to come and operate in authority and enforce Christ's victory in the world around us here and now. And so how is it that Song of Songs, that the groom comes and calls his bride, calls his church and says, my dove, my perfect one. When I look at the church and I look at us and I look what some of us are doing and the state of the church is just not true. How can he come and say, my dove, my perfect one? It's because he sees her as she one day will be. And how is it that Christ has eyes only for the church that he comes and says, my dove, my perfect one is the only one. How is it? That he has eyes only for her. Well, in light of what I've said, the church is the only one that is the centerpiece of creation. The church is the only one that that is redeemed of all of humanity. The church is the only one that is the eternal companion of Christ, his beloved. The church is the only one that in this life is being trained for the next. The church is the only one that is a partaker of the divine nature of God. The church is the only one that has true eternal divine authority in this world here and now. The church is the only one that through prayer in the arena of this world practices that authority. And so therefore the church is the only one. She stands alone in comparison to all else and anything else. She stands head and shoulders above all of them. There's none that can compare to her. None that can come close to her. She stands alone. She's solitary in her position, in her nature. And so by virtue of this, the fact that she stands alone and cannot be compared to in any other way, by virtue of this, she should also then stand alone in the heart of God. And she does stand alone in the heart of God. And this is why he says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. There are these NGOs and this parachurch and these people doing that. And, and this religion supposedly doing that. And all of these things in the proverbial sea that is out there. But my dove, my perfect, my perfect one is the only one. But my church, my bride, she is the only one. She is the only one, and so this is what it means for the church to be the only one. And so, when we think rightly of the church, when we think rightly of the bride of Christ, of who she truly is, it's nothing short of staggering, it's nothing short of completely and utterly stunning. And I come and think of the low views of the church that people have out there. And it's totally blasphemous of who God says she is. And it just doesn't come and meet up with what we read in Scripture and how we see the Bible describing her. not least of all how Jesus comes and behaves for her, giving her life, His life for her. And so we come and we reduce the church to programs and methodologies and strategy. It's not that. She is the bride of Christ. And we come and we say stupid things like, I love Jesus, but I hate His church. You can't say that. You can't love Jesus and hate His church. And we see people drifting from church to church to church, thinking that it's all about them. You cannot come and do that. One of the most beautiful things, one of the most beautiful things are those people that come and treat the church of Christ with respect and dignity. And I want to call us to come and do that, to come and raise our view of the church, to come And understand who we are and the authority that we have. Is it possible that in your understanding of the church, of who you are and the authority that you wield, that maybe it falls a little short of God's intentions and what God has destined the church to be?